Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So first of all, thank you for coming. And uh, thank you for this, uh, for this uh, um, uh, a synagogue to, thanks to the synagogue for opening their doors for, for me and for this conversation. Um, I'm going to pass around the book Revolutionary Love so that you see it because I really want you to get it and read it. And um, so uh, take, take a, a second to just read um, any of the endorsements on the back, either from Cornell West or from Gloria Steinem or from the, uh, the um, Attorney General of the state of um, Minnesota, uh, Keith Ellison. Um, pass, pass it around. Take a look at the table of contents if you want. Um, so I'm um, try, trying to um, understand and help develop an approach to um, the politics of um, the United States in particular. But really, um, what I'm talking about applies to many, many other uh, countries as well. I got involved in um, the social change uh, activism very early in my life. And, um, um, and one of the things that continually perplexed me was um, why people whose interests um, are, ought to be with the liberal and progressive forces um, have been moving away from us and towards the right. And, um, and it was that that led me to um, get my second PhD in clinical psychology, and then uh, the awarded a, I was awarded a um, research grant from the National Institute of Mental Health to study the psychodynamics in American society of middle-income working people. And that study then continued beyond the time of the, of the, the grants, um, the grants to an institution that I had formed called the, NEP, the, um, the the Institute for Labor and Mental Health, which um, was a, um, an organization that has worked with unions and as well as with non-union working people, um, and trying to understand what was going on with them and why. So I step back for a second to say that um, the un to understand the present moment, you really have to understand a much bigger set of issues. That, um, that have shaped American politics and we or Western politics. Um, and I can start, let's say, with the emergence of class society 10,000 years ago. Uh, um, but that would be a longer, too, too long of a talk. So I'll just start with the emergence of the struggle between the, um, um, the feudal order 
which used as its justification for having power over others, um, its connection to God and uh, that God had established the, the way things are and that um, um, you can't change them. This is part of what God's plan is to have uh, the, the um, a division between serfs and, uh, and owners of the, the feudal lords and um, the people who control the society. When the, a new class started to emerge around 1300, 12, 12 1300, but um, really started to fight for itself and its, um, its rights, the class that we now refer to as the bourgeoisie, or um, now the capitalist class, um, they had a struggle on their hands to try to create space for themselves. Um, and, um, and that struggle eventually led to um, an out and out struggle against the ideology of uh, the feudal aristocracy and the creation of a different worldview. And that, that different worldview um, essentially negated the religious uh, foundations of, um, of the uh, um, feudal order and, um, and developed in its uh, most extreme forms in the um, 18th century, the 1700s, a rather radical uh, assault on um, the, the old way of thinking. And a central part of that uh, assault was um, putting forward a new vision of what you could know and what was real. And um, what you could know, they argued, is that which can be um, verified um, through sense datum or could be measured. And anything that could not be measured or verified through sense datum was, um, well, when, when their worldview really became popular and, and became dominant, uh, they even had a word that they had for anything that wasn't to be respected. It was called non-sense, okay? In other words, um, that worldview, now, that worldview has become the dominant worldview, or a major part of the dominant worldview of the capitalist world in the last 250 years or so. And, um, and that worldview, um, which I call scientism, scientism because science used this as a, as a methodological approach to studying the world. And I'm all for science, I'm all pro-science and, um, uh, and its methodology for studying the physical world, the, uh, um, the uh, biological world, the chemical world. This was a very important um, guidepost. However, scientism is a different thing. Scientism is the taking of the, that approach, which is a very good way to discover how the material world works, and saying, no, this is our criterion for anything that is real or anything that can be known. Anything that can be really known or anything that can, is real must be verifiable through sense datum or measurement. Now, why that's important is because that immediately dismisses um, much of what is important in human life. It makes um, all of ethics dismissed. It's, it can't be verified through sense datum or 
measured. Uh, all of religion dismissed because it can't be verified through sense datum or measured. Um, aesthetics dismissed. And I say dismissed eventually when they took power in the, uh, after the American and, um, and uh, French revolutions um, and in the subsequent uh, um, hundred years in, in Europe. Um, they, um, they said, no, we're not really dismissing it. We're saying that's for private personal life. Uh, has no business in public life shaping our public life. But um, uh, there, all that, that can be taken seriously is that which can be um, either measured or, um, uh, or verified through sense datum. Now, um, of all the things that can possibly be measured, it turns out, not surprisingly, since this was the bourgeois class, the capitalist class, that the thing that's most easily measured is money. Okay, Mon money can be counted. You know exactly what it is. It's um, so. Um, but what? But all these other aspects of life are seen as. Um, purely subjective and having no place in the public arena. And unfortunately, this worldview was not just adopted by the rising capitalist class, but also by um, almost everybody within it, including the left, the liberal, uh, the, what now I call the liberal and progressive forces. But it included Marxism, which um, had a very um, strong scientistic element to it, that is, that it, it uh, affirmed that same kind of notion for s describing human life it had to be either subject to scientific uh, verification or it wasn't real. And so, um, so um, religion was dismissed by the, by the ultra-left at that time in the, in the 19th century as, uh, as a, um, uh, an illusion. Um, and uh, Freud came along and did the same thing in a different, different form. And um, so what happens is, is that by the 20th century, you find um, the liberal and progressive forces um, having, present, uh, having uh, um, accepted into their minds and consciousness this way of thinking about the world. Um, focus entirely on uh, uh, the section of human needs that concerns money and um, material well-being. Now, let me say that um, um, money and material well-being is not something I want to dismiss. It's very, it's, it is very important um, to, to human beings. But it's only one level of what's important to human beings. And the liberal and progressive world has um, not been able to understand and uh, much less address in any serious way all the other things that are important to human life. Um, so, um, so that even the best candidate right now, from my standpoint, Bernie Sanders, um, has um, as his focus the material redistribution of wealth, which I support. But, um, but does not have in his consciousness or in, uh, in most of his discourse um, any ability to address the other elements of human consciousness or human need. And what are those other elements? Well, 
that's what I set out to try to understand in the research that I did. And um, what I and my team of researchers learned in interviewing and in running groups of from eight to 10 weeks with middle income working people was that they, um, that they had other needs besides material needs. Now, I, again, I don't want to put down material needs because the um, pain in people's lives has, uh, has in part to do with the vast inequality of income and wealth in this society. And that's the part that the liberals get right. They know that, and they have been talking about it, and, um, and they've made, made that their stance, that they want to, uh, um, they, um, and I shouldn't say they, since I'm part of this, this uh, left, and I uh, happily identify myself as part of the liberal and progressive world, and uh, have been part of their struggles. And they're important struggles. And they definitely, the inequalities um, uh, have grown dramatically over the past 50 years, so that although um, um, people still um, have not yet rebelled against it, they nevertheless um, have um, a very large section of the population feels the pain of that um, inequality. But the inequality is not all that is there. And what we learned in speaking to what ended up being many thousands of middle-income working people and in many different parts of the country was this, that many people, when you ask them about their work world, will tell you that it's extremely frustrating. And it's extremely frustrating because um, they feel that, they have, that there is no meaning in what they are doing with their lives that the only thing that they can say about their work world is, um, it gives us some money to support our families, and we have to do that. We have to find a way to do that. So of course, we're going to stay, stay there and take the jobs. Um, but it is unfair that, um, on the economic level, but it's also frustrating <coughs> because we want to have some sense of meaning and purpose to our lives. And we're wasting our lives doing things that basically are about producing goods that most of which would not be produced if there weren't for an advertising, a brilliant advertising campaigns, um, both, uh, both intended and unintended, but nevertheless campaigns to convince people that they need things that they never thought they needed or knew that they needed, and that they, um, um, and, um, and or we're producing things that are um, destroying the environment or that are just stupid to be producing. But the one reason why we're producing them is because those who own and control the means of production um, uh, make uh, lots and lots of money from this. And that, and that money um, supposedly um, dribbles down to us, although we don't see that very much. Our team of researchers were astounded at this because most of the people in our, um, uh, most of the, the professionals who we were, um, who were part of our research team were people who had bought uh, the elitist assumptions of, um, of uh, the upper middle class and that went like this. 
we, the upper middle class, have meaning needs. They, the working class, have only material needs. Um, and this was reinforced in a way by um, the um, theory developed by Maslow, the psychologist Maslow, who talked of a hierarchy of needs in which people first needed to satisfy their material needs. And only when their material needs were satisfied would they have the psychic space to, um, uh, to seek fulfillment on other levels of, um, of their being. So, but our research was showing just not that that wasn't true. And in fact, as we then started to explore this much more, uh, we, we saw others, other studies that showed that, for example, um, when people who were desperately, desperate and financially struggling, nevertheless, tended to share more of their higher percentage of what they had with other people than people who were in the upper middle class tended to share with what they had. Um, and that, um, um, and this was true also in the uh, concentration camps, that people who were desperate for food sometimes shared their food with others at the expense of their own ability to survive. Um, because the desire to care for others was as, um, as strong, if not stronger, than the desire to survive themselves. So this was, uh, and you can, you can probably read this in um, um, Viktor Frankl's work on, um, on uh, the life in, in, in the concentration camps. Um, so a hunger for meaning and purpose, and that's just what the left or the liberal progressive forces have never addressed in any serious way. And so um, many people started to move towards the right-wing churches. When we discovered this, we went to the leadership of the AFL-CIO. I met with the president, the national president of the AFL-CIO, and then I met with the leadership of most of the major unions, because um, those unions, we, we had been working with their locals of unions in different parts of the country, and now we were in a position to um, tell them what we were discovering. And their answer to us was basically, no, that's not true. This meaning stuff, that's not. Our workers um, just care about money. They, go, they work all day at home. They come home. They sit in front of a television with a beer. And, that's, you know, and, then, um, and they never show up in a union meeting except uh, when there are contract negotiations every three or four years. Then they show up because that's what they care about. OK, so we went back to our, the people in our groups, and we said, here's what the, the national leadership is saying about what you've been telling us. And they, their answer was, um, if that were true, how do they explain why we're filling up the churches on Sunday morning? There's no money in it for us. There's no material rewards for us. Why are we going there? It's because we actually want some place where this other level of needs that we have is, is met. Now, it wasn't only uh, um, a need for meaning. It was also a need for respect and um, a sense of dignity. And um, what people were telling us was that they felt put down and uh, looked down upon by people, thank you, in the liberal and progressive world. This, again, shocked us, because we never thought that that could possibly be the case, that we would be looking down on working class people and so forth. 
But as the stories rolled in over and over again from literally thousands of different um, people that we were interviewing, um, it formed a picture of um, a, the liberal and progressive world that um, particularly put down their, their culture. And when they said, well, what's your culture? They often referred to their Christianity or their, uh, their religious culture. And what they said was, um, you know, when we're hanging out in, um, with liberals or progressives, we know that they want us in their movements because they want us to be in their demonstrations and they want us to vote for their candidates. But the subtext that we have heard is something like this. Um, we want you to be here and we hope that you stay with us long enough to evolve to a higher level of psychological sophistication or intellectual sophistication so that you'll know that all the, the, um, the religious things that you're holding on to is a bunch of crap and that you can let go of that and be, hence be on the same higher level that we are on. Now, um, this... Um, is not just of people who are activists who are giving this feeling off, but in fact is um, very typical in uh, the, any, any academic setting and in, um, and in many, many of those who have gone through um, college or graduates, graduate or professional training and come to the feeling at, that, well, I might like to go to a, a synagogue or a church, uh, but um, on occasion, for some reason or other, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, a wedding, a funeral, but I, yeah, it doesn't, I, I don't really buy this stuff. It's not of any use to me other than as, uh, well, um, like I know many people who go to synagogue regularly because they can count on a good kiddish afterwards and they can't wait for the service to be over so they can get get the refreshments. So I began to follow up on this and reflect on, I started to go to, um, in the Jewish world, I went to um, reform, conservative, reconstructionist, um, and orthodox synagogues. And um, here's what I found. In the reform, reconstructionist, and um, conservative synagogues, I often heard very smart uh, sermons and after the service was over, nobody talked to me, and I went home. Had no, there was no, no way of feeling like I was part of something there, um, unless I had the money to join, and because uh, they wanted that. Okay, but from when I went to the Orthodox synagogues, um, uh, I heard stuff that, um, and I don't mean to put down any all Orthodox people, but. What I generally heard was um, sermons that were filled with uh, um, ultra-Jewish nationalism, uh, blind support for Israel, um, a, um, uh, and a subtext of Jews are better than everybody else, smarter, more ethical, uh, better. Um, however, after the service, People would come up to me and say, um, do you have a place for lunch? Would you like to come to our house for lunch? Um, or they would say, um, or they would say um, do you have anybody in your family who's sick? Because we, 
we, we have a, a, um, a committee here that goes to visit the sick, um, or in the, are they in the hospital or are they at home? We would be happy to go visit them. Or they would say, when I, at the time in my life when I was single, they would say, would you like to meet a woman? No. Okay, so this, this now, at one level it's funny, another level it's quite like it, they were looking at me as somebody who they wanted to care for, not just somebody who they could get something from. And similarly, when I visited um, the, the growing big mega churches and many other uh, churches, um, to see what was happening there, um, they had that same kind of orthodox reaction. You got there, and people were embracing you before you even got into the, into the church. And there was, there was a real um, ethos of loving the people in, who came to the church. Um, I know when I first started to explain this to people on the left, they said, no, it's impossible. They're haters, et cetera. But the truth is, is that many of those churches survive and, and grow and cr because they actually do care about each other there. Um, they, they, they don't so much care about anybody who's not part of their church. But the, the people in, who come to that church, they give a real sense of, you can be cared for here. And in a society where the ethos of selfishness and materialism is the common sense of Capitalist, the capitalist order, there is so little of that any place else that people, when they go there, they want to come back. And they want, now, they never felt that. Um, and I'll just say from my own experience in, the, in the, the liberal and left world, which I've been involved in for actually 55 years, since 1964, uh, and um, soon to be 56 years, I think. So anyway, they, um, they, um, I never once had that experience in any of the, the left organizing meetings that I attended that people, after the meeting, felt some need or desire to go and um, find out about who I am. Or, and in fact, quite the contrary, um, many of the meetings that I've attended over the course of the years, and I've probably attended at least as much as anybody in the room, um, that, um, were filled with people putting each other down. Um, not just they had intellectual arguments, that was fine, but the intellectual arguments were often tinged with a, um, uh, an element of put down and negativity. And it didn't feel like a loving community. It felt like, now that's not to say that they didn't have high ideals. They wanted to, you know, and, and let me say here, because uh, um, you might not know, know this, that. I still believe that most people who are in the liberal and progressive world come into that world because of their own desire to have a world based on kindness and generosity and love and caring and uh, ethical, uh, ethical sensitivity. So, I, and, um, and sticking it out, and I can see that at least some people in this room have probably been around in these for quite a while, sticking it out I want to say I have tremendous respect for anybody who has stuck it out in that world and continued to fight for social and economic justice. I have great respect for you and for all those who are still doing that. But what I'm trying to tell you is 
that a lot of people had a different experience there. And the experience was one that pushed them off, turned them off, et cetera. Now, um, complicating this, there's another element in the capitalist worldview that has played a very important role in this, um, in why the disrespect that people were experiencing in, in the left had such a um, powerful impact on them. Um, and that is that the, the, the ruling elites of this society, um, for at least a good 100 years, have not depended on claiming that the society is fair in the sense of that it, there's equality and that people have the same. Instead, what they say is that this is a meritocracy. It's a society built on merit. And that those who are more successful are more successful because they are smarter or they've worked harder. Now, we um, were amongst others who've done testing of um, working class people and found that the distribution of intelligence is basically the same amongst the 70%, the lowest 70% of, um, of uh, earners or wealth holders as uh, amongst the top 20%. And in the, the middle of the seven, 70 to 80, I don't have a lot of data on, but all right, but the rest, anyway, um, this, the, the same distribution of smart people and, and then in terms of working hard, um, the poorer people got, the harder they had to work in order to just have enough money to feed their families. So it was clearly not true. This, um, and in case you want something more um, uh, definitive, you could read a study that the New York Times published in, in uh, 20, um, uh, let's see, 20, 2008 that said, that essentially showed that the, the amount of upward mobility available in the, uh, the society for people who were born in the lowest 70% was approximately 1% over the course of 50 years. 1% mobility. So most people have um, very, very limited mobility from, where they're, uh, from um, where they're born into where they go. That doesn't mean that they have the same lives as their parents or grandparents, because the pie has expanded somewhat, in part by virtue of um, American domination of, other, of the e economics of the rest of the world, starting with the uh, Breton Britain, whatever, the, the agreement that, um, that set the, um, the, economic, the global economic systems in 1944. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So, so here's what the, the, we learned as a central issue, that most people in, in uh, working class uh, realities have a deep, 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 deep um, self-blaming story that is the consequence of believing that they are in a meritocracy. Um, they hear the meritocracy, not just from their teachers in schools, but from their parents from the ages of two or three or four. You know, if you do well in school, if you work hard, you know, you don't have to have the life that I have. 
I don't want you to be like me. I want you to, I want you to do better. Um, I, I don't want you to have the same stupid kind of job I have, et cetera. I want you to do better. I want you to succeed. And you can do that if you work hard and you, and you study right and so forth. Well, what we discovered was that um, a huge percentage of the American public has a self-blaming story. Now, the self-blaming stories differ from person to person. Um, but they, they all have in common that a story about why they screwed themselves up in life, and that, that's why they have the situation that they have that they feel is unfulfilling for them. So they go from, I should have studied harder when I was in uh, high school. I, should have, uh, I, should have I shouldn't have played so much when I was in college. I, um, I should have played up to my first or second or third supervisor when I was in the world of work. Um, uh, for women, it's, it often has included uh, if I had been more attractive when I was bo you know, born more attractive, or if I had um, played up to male egos better, or if I, you know, or what I'm saying is a wide variety of what the self-blaming stories include, but they are extremely painful. And as a result, most people try to suppress them. So much, in fact, that they rarely discuss this with their, uh, their spouse or um, husband or wife, or um, they rarely discuss it even with their closest friends. So we asked them, why? Why don't you? And their answer was, because I don't want to be advertising myself as a failure. I don't, want to, I don't want my husband, or I don't want my wife, or I don't want my friends to see me as a failure. I want them to see me as OK. And so when people ask me how I'm doing, I usually say, oh, cool, everything's fine, great, whatever. But inside, I'm hurting. OK, now how do people deal with this hurt? Well, drugs, alcohol, these are the two main ones, but also various forms of activity, including being attracted to right-wing uh, right communities. Now, why right-wing communities? Because the right-wing communities have a message that reduces self-blaming. And as a result, makes, them, makes people feel much better about themselves. And that story is, you're not to blame. There, this, this thing that you're talking about, whatever you're feeling bad about yourself, that's a social problem. It's a societal problem. And that's a very good message to be given. Now the, however, it then goes on to a part that isn't so good. Namely, it says, it's not your fault. It's the fault of, and then fill in the demeaned others of the society. Now, in the United States, that was um, originally <coughs> Native Americans and, uh, then Af and African Americans. But then, um, in the 20th century, that moved beyond that to, particularly in the second half of the 20th century, into um, feminists are to blame. Um, liberals are to blame. Um, uh, immigrants or asylum seekers um, are to blame. Uh, or all people of color are to blame. Um, in, in Europe, that role was played in the first half of the 20th century by Jews. Whatever is wrong, it's the Jews who made this happen. And uh, rec more recently, under Trump, um, Jews have been added to the list of groups that are 
being demeaned and but so now so what the right offers is um, a reduction of self-blame. Now you would think that in in this society, the left and the liberal world would have understood this and been trying to do that same thing. But in um, but when we asked people about that, they said quite the contrary. That, that what they hear from the, the left, and just to say, this has been repeated and repeated in so many so many forms over the course of the past fifty or sixty years. Um, but um, in its most recent form, that ha happened after the twenty sixteen election. Um, why um, why did those people not vote for us? Why were they either not voting at all? or voting for Trump? Answer from the liberal and progressive world. The most frequent form of answer is this. Because the American people are racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, um, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic, or just plain stupid. Now, this is exactly um, inside of them what they've been hearing all their life in one form or other is, um, why you have what you have is because you're, you failed. You're not smart enough. You, you screwed up. You didn't do the right things. And, um, and now we're hearing it from we. So many people on the left respond by saying, well, wait a second. I never said that to anybody. And you know, I never. But what, the, what liberal and progressives don't know is that what we say to each other is heard way, way, way beyond our own circles, because people on, our, on the periphery of the liberal and progressive world hear the same thing and pick up the same discourse. And it is a put down discourse that makes people feel terrible, because it hooks in to the self-blaming that they already were carrying with them all their lives. So um, if we want a different world, we need to um, address the self-blaming. We need to challenge the self-blaming. And we need to um, address the feeling that people get from us. In other words, we need to build a different kind of liberal and progressive movement. And that's what I've written about in this book called Revolutionary Love. Because what I talk about here is how to build a movement that is not only about, now this not only, it doesn't mean we're excluding, not only about economic entitlements and political rights, those are important. But we haven't been winning them. Or if we won them, we've won them for a very short time, and then they go away again. Okay, We haven't been winning them. And in order to win them, we need to reestablish or recreate a liberal and progressive world that, is, that has a place for, um, uh, well, that overcomes the religiophobia that is a dominant element in liberal and progressive um, culture, so that people don't feel that their culture is being put down all the time. I have tell this story of um, uh, someone who was, came to one of my talks about this. Of, uh, and she got up. She was in her mid-20s and said, you know, I, I was very interested in this guy. And he finally called me and said, can we go out for, um, for a brunch on Sunday morning? And I said to him, I'd love to go out with you. Can we do it in the afternoon? Because I go to church in the morning. He said, church, I thought you were a liberal. And he hung up. Um, OK, it was an extreme example, but it was not atypical of the feelings that many, many people in the liberal and progressive world have 
about anybody who is into religion in any serious way. So many people who are in the liberal and progressive world um, still, because they were some of those were part of our, our uh, uh, the groups that we were running, would say to us, "Yeah, I I, I do go to church, or I do, um, or I do go to um, some kind of spiritual, maybe a yoga, or I do some kind of spiritual." but I never tell it to the people in the political movements that I'm in because I know they'll look down upon me if, if I tell them that. So I go there, but I don't, I don't advertise it, you know? I don't, um, because I, I know that there is that culture in the, the liberal and progressive world that looks down upon people who have um, an interest in something spiritual or religious. Um, we have to change that. We have to build a different kind of liberal and progressive movement. And so um, um, in order to change, change the society, we need to change how people perceive us. But in order to change how people perceive us, we need to change us. We, that is to say that the first task of building a different kind of movement, and a movement that I'll now call a love and justice movement, um, is to um, change what the liberal and progressive forces are like and what we, um, what we think is acceptable. Now, um, that's a big order. Uh, it means um, um, recasting how we are heard and what we actually believe. The, how we are heard, um, I, um, I argue, should be um, changed in the following way, that all the different um, organizations with their different um, silos in which they're in. The people who are fighting for human, human rights over here, or the people who are fighting for um, imminent, Im, immigrant rights, or the people who are fighting for, um, for femi feminist rights, or the people who are fighting for LGBTQ people, or the people who are fighting for um, rights of workers, or the people who are fighting whatever uh, else you want to add. All these separate silos should adopt a um, a clearly understandable core vision of what they all have in common. And we are suggesting, I am suggesting in this book, and we in build, who are trying to build this new, new movement um, say that um, what they should adopt is a new bottom line uh, to challenge the bottom line of capitalist society with its focus on money and power and then replace it with a bottom line that says the following. Every institution should be judged efficient, rational, and productive, including our economic system, our political system, our legal system, our cultural system, our educational system. Uh, all of our different systems should be judged efficient, rational, and productive to the extent that they maximize people's capacity to be loving and caring, kind and generous, ethically and environmentally sensitive and uh, taking care of the earth. Uh, capable of responding to other human beings and seeing other human beings as embodiments of the sacred rather than seeing them simply through the framework, a utilitarian framework of what have you done for me lately or what can you do for me to advance my interests and looking at the earth, not simply from the standpoint of, gee, I wonder if there's something here I can turn into a product and sell, make a buck off of, but looking at the earth and the universe uh, in which it exists with awe wonder and radical amazement at the grandeur and mystery of being itself. 
Okay, I said that in less than a, a minute and a half. Of, um, I've t timed it of, of our new bottom line. But the new bottom line is what's desperately needed because it reframes what, what, what actually almost all the, the social change movements do have in common, but have never articulated. But they've never articulated it because they're afraid to talk about love and kindness and generosity. They see this as new agey, as, um, as uh, simplistic, as something that will be dismi dismissed by others. They want to show that they are hard and tough. They want to show that they can lean in, as women were recently told to do, into the capitalist order so that you learn how to fight just as tough as any man in, in that order. I'm, I'm saying, and we are saying, no, lean out. Lean back into being um, affirming love and kindness and generosity as what our movements are about. Now, again, people will say to me, yeah, but that's, um, that's we, we've always said that. We always believe that. Well, nobody's hearing you saying it that way. And um, so uh, I'm reminded of a story my father used to tell me uh, when I was a kid of, um, of um, somebody who was in, um, uh, 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 in uh, Europe at a time when his before there was a cross-Atlantic um, uh, cable, so you couldn't call from Europe to the United States. Um, so this is before the Second World War. Um, and um, uh, he, his mother was having her 80th birthday. He wanted to get her a very special pre present. So he wandered around find, to find the best possible gift for her. her Anyway, he found this store that advertised itself as having the most unique gifts in the world. He goes into the store looking around, and he sees this parrot that's on sale for $1,800. Now, before the Second World War, that was a lot of money. Okay, <laughs> So he goes and he asks the, the owner of the store, what in the world, why are you charging $1,800 for this parrot? And he says, this parrot is an amazing parrot. It speaks 27 different languages. OK, so to make a long story short, he bargains him down to $1,200 and, and sends the parrot to his mother. When he gets back to the States, he call, immediately calls her, Mom, did you get the, uh, your 80th birthday gift? She says, yeah, thank you so very much. It was delicious. So <laughs> he says, Mom, you didn't eat that parrot. He says, yes, it was really good. He says, Mom, I paid $1,200 for that parrot. He says, why would you pay $1,200 for a parrot? He says, Mom, that parrot spoke 27, uh, was it 27? Yeah. 27 different languages. She, uh, she says, 27 different languages? So why didn't he say something? <laughs> okay. I'm saying to you, if you think that the liberal and progressive world is really about love, care, and kindness, and generosity, why don't we say something about that? Why don't we put that at the center of our discourse? Because it rarely is there. Now, that's the first. So what I'm saying is we need to reconstruct our movements in ways that um, reflect that kind of care, caring, kindness, generosity, and articulate it as what we are really about. And it would change dramatically the nature of American politics if what people heard, let's say, after even five or 10 years of people repeating, no, we want a new bottom line of love, kindness, generosity, caring for each other, caring for the planet, et cetera. Um, 
they, they'd say, oh, that's what liberals are about? I'm for that too. I want that too. But that's not what they hear. They hear only um, we're for the economic entitlements and political rights, which they also share, and they're happy that they have that. But they, they don't see the way they look at the liberals and progressives is the way most of us look at our insurance agent. Now, we're very glad we have house insurance or car insurance, right? But very few of us feel close to our, our insurance agents. You know, we don't, we're glad we have the coverage. We want the, you know, but it doesn't warm our hearts, right? That's how an awful lot of people see a liberal and progressive world. They see us as the insurance agents for some specific services that they're glad they have, but they don't feel, um, but when they go um, to decide who's, who they are uh, identifying with in politics, their identification comes from who actually respects me, who likes me. And there, they often find that their, their experience with the liberal and progressive world leads them to think, they don't like me. They, they actually disdain me. So although, um, so here's the hard part to swallow. But, but true nevertheless, that although we, when we're talking about the right and so forth, say, oh, well, they're all a bunch of haters, they say the same thing about us. They say, we are haters. We hate them. We disdain them. We dislike them. We put them down. We think poorly of them. And it turns out that that's actually true for at least a significant section of people in the liberal and progressive world that they do have this feeling about anybody who isn't on our side. Now, this is not to say that I am therefore saying, give up on all kinds of judgments about the pol policies that they support, okay? Um, but what you'll find when you get to know many of these people who, have let, who were, who were um, Obama voters in, 20, uh, tw in 2008 or even in 2012, some of them were even, um, uh, Bernie voters in the primaries, and then they went to the right there. Um, why? Um, because they felt that the people really didn't like them. Now, the, you know, the most frequently um, referred to uh, re reference of that discourse is what Hillary Clinton famously said in the fall of the 2016 election when she said, oh, uh, half of them who are not on our side are a, uh, a bundle of deplorables. Just give you one little story about that. Um, one of the people we interviewed in, in 2017 told um, of, of her, her experience in 2016 working in the South trying to convince people. So she stayed with a friend of hers who lived in the South who was uh, a college roommate of hers and had stayed very close to her in the 20 ensuing years. And um, at the end of the time, she said to her friend as she was leaving, look, I've, I've gone door to door, and I've, I haven't been very successful in moving people. But at least you, my friend, you'll vote for Hillary, I hope. And uh, she said, well, I haven't made up my mind yet. Now, that was two days before the election. So this, the, woman said, the, the woman who had been doing this canvassing said, look, I know that if you're saying that, it must mean you're, you're going to vote for Trump, but you're just embarrassed to tell it to me. And she said, well, no, I, you know, um, so this upper, upper middle class woman, successful professional, et cetera, says, 
No, I, I, I haven't really made up my mind exactly, but I just want you to know one thing. I am not a deplorable. Okay, now you might think, well, that's strange. Why would she think she was a deplorable? But the truth is, is that the right, once Hillary had said that, managed to re, um, replay that at least a thousand times in the, in not only on Fox News, but uh, I mean on Fox Station, but in all the radio stations that they have in, uh, control and ownership of, over and over and over again. Um, that was, after all, from the standpoint of people who are not on the left, this is the person that most people on the left identified with and voted for, okay? We refused Bernie, we chose Hillary. She's, this is, she's revealing what people have been feeling all their life, and she's saying it. You're all deplorables, okay? She, uh, uh, okay, so um, that has to be changed, and until it's changed, it doesn't ma matter how much um, uh, we may win in a, a particular election but we will not be able to deal with um, the most important crisis facing humanity at this moment, namely the destruction of our life support system until we can pass um, uh, amendments to the Constitution uh, that will um, change the way we deal with the environment. Why amendments to the Constitution? Because any legislation put forward that in any way restricts the, um, uh, in any serious way restricts the ability of the corporate elite to make as much money as they want will be declared unconstitutional by a Supreme Court now packed with right-wing ideologues who have already um, uh, overturned the, uh, the important elements of the voter registration uh, bill that was the central part of the civil rights movement's supposed victory in the 1960s and uh, have um, validate, overturned um, uh, the restrictions on um, money in politics and will overturn, um, is likely to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade, but will certainly overturn um, any serious attempts to limit um, the uh, ability of corporations to do what, what they need to do to maximize their, their bottom line. Now, as I say, we need a new bottom line. And part of the reason we need a new bottom line is explained in the, in the book that, um, that the um, environmental scientists say that one of the main things that we have to change is the, uh, a, a central uh, dynamic of capitalist societies, namely that um, uh, you need to expand in order to survive. You need to put out more, sell more and more and more. And so growth, that's the nice way of putting it, growth um, uh, actually means accumulating more and more uh, money. But in order to accumulate more and more money, you have to produce more and more goods. And as though the uh, raw materials that we use in those goods are um, a, uh, uh, well, as though the earth itself is a bottomless cookie jar. And you can take as many cookies out as you want for as long as you want, and it'll have no impact. But the actual truth, the environmental uh, scientists tell us, is that it's having a big impact on, uh, on the, the survivability of the planet itself, or not the planet, but of the life support system of the planet. More and more junk means more and more stuff in the, in the waters, and more and more junk in the air means more and more poisons in the air, 
and more and more stuff in the land means less and less that the land can produce the food that is needed to feed, feed the populations. So we need a f some fundamental transformations. And in the book, I lay out some of those, what those would look like. Um, but the first thing I do in the second, uh, in chapters four and five, is I try to tell you, uh, show you what a society based on a new bottom line could look like, and um, what a caring society could look like. Um, and uh, it's different from this one. Um, it's, it's one in which people have reconstructed institutions to honor each other and to, um, uh, and to reward each other and no longer in interested in uh, focusing on how much more money you can accumulate, but rather on how much caring you can show. So another way of calling this, we say it's a movement for a... Um, the movement for love, uh, love and justice. Uh, but another way of talking about it is it's the creation of what we call the caring society, caring for each other and caring for the earth. Now, this is the society that is desperately needed for the survival of the planet, but also for the mental health of most human beings. We need a whole different way of organizing. Now, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if you're saying to yourself, um, that's very sweet, Rabbi Lerner, but it's so unrealistic. I mean, come on, you don't really think this can happen, do you? So I want to point out to you two levels. First, the level of Judaism, um, because I, I'm believing that there are many of the people here are Jewish in this, in this crowd tonight. Um, not everybody need be, but some, many are. Um, and that is that... Um, when we talk about um, God, who is God? Well, um, from, the standpoint, from the standpoint that I'm talking, um, God is the, that about the universe, the force in the universe, that makes possible the transformation from that which is to that which ought to be. And Judaism, when, when Moses goes to, um, is confronted by God at, at uh, the burning bush, and um, and is trying to argue against being the one who has to go back to the, because uh, he's now made a life for himself in the suburbs, and he's being asked to go back into the center city where his, his kin are, are still enslaved. So he asks, he says, look, when I go there, the Pharaoh's going to say, who's this God? He's got a book of a thousand different gods. Which one is you, are you representing? And God says, Ehyeh asher Ehyeh. Tell them Ehyeh sent you. Sent you. Now, Ehyeh, Asher Ehyeh, means I will be whom I will be. Classically mistranslated in the King James is I am who I am. But actually, Ehyeh is future tense. I, I will be whom I will be. That is to say, I am the force of possibility in the universe. I am that which makes possible the transformation from that which is to that which ought to be. I am the power that makes that happen um, through you. But nevertheless, that's, that is, um, that's, um, you can be agents of, my, of mine. You're created with that capacity. That's why I say you're created in my image, because you also have the capacity to transform what is. Now, the central teaching of every class society, not just capitalist society, is that um, the way things are is the only way things can be. And you've got to learn how to roll with the punches and accept 
that the way things are is fixed and accept that the world is the way it is. Along come the Jews and say, um, no, uh, that's wrong. Actually, there's a God in the universe, a force in the universe, that makes possible a transformation from that which is to that which ought to be. And that force made it possible for us. We were slaves, and now we're free. And so if you want to understand why anti-Semitism uh, uh, emerged way before Christianity emerged, it emerged from ruling elites who felt deeply threatened by this because they've been teaching their, all the people in that society that they have to stay where they are, that nothing can change. Um, and along come this group and say, not only do we believe that there is the force that can change things, but we personally witnessed it. We were slaves, and now we're free. Uh, now, along come, um, at, so this generates tremendous anger on the part of ruling elites. They, don't want, they want their people to not listen to these Jews. They want their people to hate these Jews. They want the people to distance from these Jews. Um, now, then there develops, over a course of time, elites in the Jewish world who try to cuddle up to the ruling elites of the larger society and say, look, that's just a religion. We don't believe that. You know, it's just a, uh, we just have that in our shuls on, Sunday, on Saturday, on Shabbos. We read that, but you know, <coughs> that's not what we believe. Um, we won't be a trouble. trouble. But this is hard for the elites to believe for two reasons. Number one, because starting in the ancient world and continuing in the modern world, um, Jews have been disproportionately represented in every social change movement uh, and often in leadership positions in those movements. Back in Rome, back in Greece, before the, before the turn of the, you know, before we went into the common era, but when we were in the before the common era, in BCE. So, um, and the, the elites say to us, now that's happening because, because of your teachings. And what's more, you may not believe it, but you read this Torah every week. And the Torah is this, this story. And you have your holidays built around this story. You have your Passover celebration. You're, and you're commanded to teach, teach your children as though they personally went out of Egypt. So you're spreading this subversive story to everybody. No wonder we don't want people to hear your story, because we want you to believe that you're stuck. OK, so from a, uh, from a standpoint of, uh, of a religious Jew, or at least of some religious Jews, um, this story is the essence of our being. Who, what it is to be a Jew is to be who, somebody who testifies to the possibility of possibility who testifies to the possibility that a world that is screwed up can be healed and transformed. That's what Tikkun means, uh, the, book, the magazine that I edit called Tikkun.org. Tikkun, um, that's what it is to be a Jew, is to believe in that and have that. So if you read the Torah, and again, or the next time you get to read the Torah, or any part of it, and the word in English is God, translate it this way the force in the universe that makes possible the transformation from that which is to that which ought to be. And you will see why that is a, um, a revolutionary document. The Torah, which uh, produced lots of revolutionaries, is a revolutionary document because it sees, it's continually affirming that there is this possibility. So that's one level of my answer to those of you who are saying, come on, you don't really believe it's possible, do you? 
The second thing is to ask you about your own experience, because many of you in this room lived through the 1960s and 70s and 80s and 90s. And in this period, you saw, number one, um, Martin Luther King Jr. joins with others to say, we want to end segregation. Most other um, African-American clergy were, um, criticized him, were down on him, said, don't say that. You know, let's ask for something. Maybe we can get to have, uh, don't have to sit in the, ba uh, in, uh, in the back seats of the bus anymore. Let's get some realizable, actual thing that we can win. And he says no. And thank God he was unrealistic, and his movement was unrealistic, and segregation was dismantled. That's not to say that equality was achieved or racism defeated, but a major move forward. Similarly, small groups of women in a variety of cities around the country, in, you know, in, in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Seattle and um, a number of other cities, start to say a few hundred women at most um, to, to be the progenitors of the second wave of feminism in the 1960s and 70s. And they're saying, we want to struggle against patriarchy. Now, most other women, including those who wanted to wanted much more rights for women, said, don't talk about patriarchy. Don't you know that patriarchy has been here for the last 10,000 years? What, you, this little group of people, you're going to undermine patriarchy? Come on, be realistic. Narrow it down to some, you know, some specific little things that we can, we can actually win. Maybe instead of the difference between um, male males salaries for the same job is that you get 60%, maybe it should, we can raise it to 70% or 75% of, of what men are getting for the same job. That's something that's a realistic, achievable goal. Don't talk about patriarchy. Well, thank God for those women who refuse to be realistic because as a result, the changes in the status of women around the, not just the United States, but around the world, went far, have in the past 60 years, gone far beyond what the most visionary of those women thought was possible at the time. Similarly, the LGBTQ, the lesbians and, and gays, and it's, I won't, you probably know what it all stands for, so. Um, so the, um, when, when they start uh, asking for equal rights, um, lots of others said, no, just let them not beat us up in the streets. You know? let, let them not attack us. But they pushed forward. And, and then the same thing happened in that community when they said, we want to have uh, um, uh, the right for gay marriage. And so many of them said, we've won a lot. Don't push it. You know, don't, don't push it that far. But the ones who said we can um, were unrealistic, and thank God for that. So I'm saying to you, you know that some of the most significant changes that have happened in the past 60 years in, in your lifetime have happened because people refuse to be realistic. And I'm saying to you that this is sort of the center of my message. Don't be realistic. Don't be realistic. Because being realistic means accepting the word from the political leadership and the economic leadership of this country uh, passed down through the people that they work with, uh, com uh, conveyed to us in the media commentators, um, uh, and, in, um, and often conveyed to us 
even by our friends who have been, who have been taught that, uh, who taught to say, well, no, what you want is unrealistic, so forget it. Um, we, asked, we asked some of the working people that we were interviewing, um, um, why don't you struggle to change things? And they said, well, because everybody is, uh, everybody in the society is just selfish and looking out for number one. We said, well, um, do you have any friends? Yeah. Well, are all your friends just selfish and looking out for number one? And their answer was, no, not our friends, just everyone else. Okay? So they had been sold this picture of who everybody else is. But what I'm telling you is most people yearn for something different. They yearn for a different kind of world. And unfortunately, the one that's selling that alternative world vision is the right wing right now. Now, you may say, well, wait a second, but they have all these hateful programs. That's true. They do have hateful programs. But that's not what they're selling to the people who come into their churches. That's not what they're selling to them. They are selling primarily um, something about affirming who they are. And we need to, to be that kind of a reality. So that's why I'm here to, um, A, urge you to read the book, which has a lot more in it than I've been able to convey in this amount of time. But B, also um, to um, get your friends to read it. Get your friends to read this book. Um, share it with other people. Create a little study group, if you can, or four or five people sit together and talk about a chapter once a week or once a month, whatever works for you. Um, this is a first step in, um, like the first steps in the early women's movement, uh, where they had consciousness raising groups. This is a first step in consciousness raising about a transformation. And you can't go and, you know, so people say, well, okay, I can't go and talk to those right wingers about th this stuff. They'll just laugh at me. So we're not asking you to do that. We're asking you the first step is to change the liberal and progressive world. The liberal and progressive world right now is the problem. When the liberal and progressive world changes, then it would be much easier to speak to other people. But if you go speak to other people and say, come back, we're really a loving community, they won't discover that. It's not there. It's not what they will experience there. So um, um, then, as I say, there's a lot more in, the, in this book about what a loving community would look like and um, how to get there. And um, so we offer also a training online. Um, the next training is starting, I think, in two weeks. Uh, you can get it by going to, uh, to spiritualprogressives.org slash training. Um, and um, the training goes for like eight weeks for like two hours a week. And it's, uh, it's really good. And the people who have been through it, we have about 1,000 people who have gone through it so far. And it's changed a lot of them and their lives. Um, I'd like to ask you to consider seriously trying what I'm saying. Let's, uh, what I say in the book is like suspend your, your doubts. Try it for, um, read this book through, and for a month afterwards, try to live in a world in which you're thinking, actually, this could happen. And then you can go back to your cynicism or whatever. But try it first, because it, you'll see that it's actually invigorating and hope-producing and able to overcome all the depression that the uh, Trump administration is creating for so many people. Um, and it'll give you a sense of how you could actually move to change, change our world in a very positive way. So I'm going to stop here and questions and Thank arguments. You,
Yeah, go ahead. So what you described is, um, is a very idealistic, aspirational end state. And uh, assuming that, that that's something that we could all embrace, I'm from New England, so we like to say, how do you get there from here? <laughs> um, so um, the way you get there is to, number one, train people in the liberal and progressive world. And so that's our first step. We want to train people in how to be agents of demystification, of, um, of helping them understand um, what their own self-blaming has been and how to help other people overcome their self-blaming. That's step number one. Step number two is to then advance some of the specific projects that we put in forward in, in uh, chapter um, in chapter five, which are um, specific ideas of what a movement would look like. So here's one. Okay, um, we already did this um, for a while in California. Um, we took a um, a day each year to celebrate working people and their lives, and to um, to highlight the the contribution that they were actually making to the lives of other people. And we brought together those people, as it turned out, we called it um, uh, fa Family Day, um, celebrate their work in trying to, s to support their families and celebrate their work in, uh, in their work world and what they were doing there. And we had thousands and thousands of working people come to these events and um, loving it and feeling like, oh, um, Somebody is paying attention to what I'm doing. I thought my job was just you know, to make somebody rich, but I'm also doing something that other people are respecting, and they're, they're feeling different. So that's like a specific one, one thing, OK? Doing, um, if the liberal and progressive world were saying to working class people, we respect you. We honor what you're co contributing to the society. We want to support you. And for jobs that don't, can't be said that way, we want to say we honor the part of you that would like to have a different kind of work and a different kind of way of making a living. That's one thing. OK, a second thing is we want to put forward some um, specific legislative programs, for example, that we want to reduce the work week to 28 hours and four, four days a week. And, um, and that program will seem, sounds utopian now, just as the 40-hour week sounded utopian when it was being put forward in the beginning of the 20th century. It sounded utopian because people couldn't imagine that that would work. But actually, it will save the planet a lot if, um, if we're not producing things um, all the time. And it will also create jobs for places where they, um, where they need more workers than the uh, 28 hours a week. And the, the reason we're doing it is because we want people to have more time to spend in building loving and caring relationships with their children and with their families. And uh, it's very hard for people who come home each day from the world of work exhausted and often angry and not sure why they're angry, but then taking it out on their wife or their husband or their, their children and children then end up feeling very bad about themselves that their parents aren't loving them in the way that they want to. I mean, I can only imagine 
what must have been done to uh, Donald Trump as a kid to make him turn out the, you know, in the horrific, I mean, I have a lot of compassion for people who have gone through the uh, abuse, both psychological and physical, that many people get as a result of parents who have been, who don't know how to let out their anger any other way, so they let it out on people that they care about. Um, of course, there are other ways to deal with it, and one is drugs, and another is, is alcohol, and uh, there are a lot of people who have gotten into both of those escapes from the pain. But anyway, so that's another specific thing. Reduce the work week. Give people more time, free time. Um, but then also build a core of people who can talk to them about the ways that they've been self-blaming. And um, we did it. We did it with thousands of people. We know how the technology to do it. Um, this could be done um, the way the women's movement started to do for millions of women, helping them reduce their self-blaming and helping them understand that there was a system out there of sexism and patriarchy that were the problem and that they weren't the problem. But at first, it was very hard. At first, it was very hard to get w women to listen to their feminist sisters and brothers, or mostly their sisters. Um, but eventually, uh, an awful lot of the message of feminism started to seep in. So I, um, I give you a picture that is not something that I invented, but that has already been done with the women's movement and with uh, the, um, to some extent, by the um, uh, African-American movement when it started to talk about black is beautiful and, um, um, other, well, anyhow, yes. People who oppose what's going on now, you create two narratives. One is very much like you say, they're all racists. Trump is a racist, he's a con man. Read the Times, there's article after article after article saying that. So the other that you hear sometimes is Nancy Pelosi says, I pray for you. Um, so do you think that the first narrative is the wrong thing to do on our part in order to be a the, the, first, the first narrative is you're, you're, all, you're all screwed up and evil. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 And that you're homophobic and you're blah, blah, blah. Do you think that, that people should stop saying that? Um, well, and say more like Nancy Pelosi, let's pray for him? Well, no, I wouldn't go that way. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's another form of put down, really. Um, I mean, I don't think that either of those is a really good approach. I think the approach is to say, I want to talk to you about the pain that so many people have in their lives. And maybe some of this applies to you. I don't know. But I know it applies to a lot of people. Um, and, um, uh, and it's ripping apart our society and hurting us. So I want to talk to you about it a little bit, about what's going on and, um, in your life and in the lives of many other people. But let, I just want to share with you some of what I've learned about what's going on with other people and see if there's any of it that makes any sense to you. And that's a, a different form of conversation. It's one that is not putting down and saying, I want to talk to you about some, something that's going on that's destroying our communities and making it hard. And um, 
And if they say back, no, it's all because of the Jews or the blacks or the gays or the whatever, you have to say, um, actually, that's not really true. Like, um, the gays have not anything to do with what's going on in your family. They don't, they don't play any role in your family life. The blacks, the same thing. Um, well, in other words, I can't give you all the techniques, but there are. Um, but we teach the te techniques for being able to talk in a compassionate, empathic way. However, we don't call it empathy. We call it prophetic empathy. The difference between empathy and prophetic empathy, the prophets understood some of the suffering that people had. But they also had a strong message to say about what was wrong in the society that was screwing up people's lives. Prophetic empathy is one that combines both the caring for other people with, in a caring way, introducing categories to them about what the structures are of this society that undermine their capacity to find fulfillment in their lives. And um, so it's not blaming them, but it is helping them to understand how in the capitalist order as it's currently set up, um, the values that they hold or that the world that they want for themselves can't be achieved within this order. But that order can be, can be transformed. It can be overcome, just as other forms of oppression have been overcome. So I don't know if that gives you any, does that partly answer your question or not? The, the, get the liberals and the progressives to stop being anti-Semitic and hating, hating Jews and hating Israel and being against Israel and everything. Um, what, which candidate would you, would you pick from all of the Democratic candidates? I've been a liberal my entire life. My parents were liberals. My grandparents, you know, they loved Roosevelt. They loved every, you know, just like most Jews. Because this is what we believe in, is all this equality and all of these wonderful things. But they, they don't want us. And you know what? <laughs> I don't want to vote for a president that isn't, that's anti-Semitic. And okay. I think that Trump, unfortunately, I don't like him. I think he's totally mixed up. But he's done a lot of wonderful things for Israel. And I think that, that if we don't stand for Israel, nobody else will. Well, is, first of all, uh, Trump has unleashed anti-Semitism in a form that has never happened in this country since the Second World War. In saying, as he did after the Charlottesville attack um, of the march of fascists and Nazis against, um, uh, with signs against Jews, um, he said, oh, there are good people on both sides, okay? of that struggle. They're good people. In other words, the Nazis and the Jews who are fighting against them are equal. That had never been, since the Second World War, there's never been anything like that. Trump has made the biggest contribution to, this, to, to the reappearance of anti-Semitism and to the, um, to the surge that never happened under, a, under Clinton or never happened under Obama or whatever. The anti-Semitism has, has become much, 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 much more prominent and real in this mo moment. And, the and it was underground, and it has now been legitimated to come up from underground. 
So I have a different story than you do about what is going on. Now, next, it is not anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. There is nothing anti, you, you can love your fellow Jew. You can, you can, what? Pardon me? He's doing a lot of good for Israel. To me, Israel is very important. Okay, I'm, you can, that's fine. That ancestors had to go through in Europe and, and going through the Holocaust. Yes, I know about that. Israel is an important country. Yes. I think that you need to stand up for Israel. Yes, but, but there's a difference between stand... I'm happy to be here. Okay, but... but I don't like the fact that the liberals and the progressives are, are, are saying are just very anti-Semitic. Okay. And they're very anti-Israel. Okay, well... I haven't heard one that's not, presidential candidate say anything that they would do that was good for Israel. They want to flip the country. They're going to, they're going to put the, condemn Israel. They're not going to, you know, the BDS and all this. Okay. Who, which candidate do you know who supports BDS? Which presidential candidate? I don't know. If There's not a do, single but, one. You but don't. I don't know in other words, that, that, in other words, you. You know, Israel is a wonderful country, <laughs> okay. and Israel has given this world so many things, wonderful things. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay. Look, I, I, um, I'm somebody who supports Israel, wants Israel to be strong. That doesn't mean that I support its policies, okay? I support the United States. I, I believe this is a wonderful country also, and I often oppose its policies. There's a, you can't conflate those two things. I took, I took my son to Israel and eventually allowed him, because he needed my signature to do this, to join the Israeli army, and, and why he needed the signature is because the Israeli army won't let as an only child, which he is, to join a combat unit without the parents signing permission for him to be in that combat unit. And he then went and served in the Tzan Hanim and the paratroopers. So you don't have to tell me about loving Israel because I, I, you know, I put my son in, in, in that situation, gave him support for that situation that very few of the Jews I know in this country who are yapping about how much they love Israel have ever done something with, that take that risk with somebody that they cared so much about. So, uh, so, uh, okay, so, so, um, okay, so, so it is not anti-Israel to have criticisms of Israel. Okay, now if you're saying, is there anybody else there in, uh, of those who run who have a tight connection to Israel? Yeah, Bernie. He went in Israel, he lived in a kibbutz, he worked for, for it, and... He is the most anti-Semitic Jew I've ever heard of. Okay, well... I mean, okay, okay, I'm not going to argue Bernie. All right. Anyway... Put all the Arabs on his campaign, please. Jews. Okay. Muslims want to kill all of us. Anybody that's an Israel. And we are all into How many Muslims do you know? I mean, why are you saying this stuff? It's it's. Well, I'm because I've read how many Muslims do you know? Yeah, and there are portions in Torah that also have some outrageous things to say. Okay, what I'm saying to you is. Okay. Okay, I'm, I'm, I want, I'm not, I didn't, yeah, I didn't come to talk about Israel, and I understand your, your, your concerns. A lot of Jews, unfortunately, are still blind to the 
Okay. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. And I and I respectfully respectfully disagree with you. I respectfully disagree with you. It's not my experience in the liberal world. There, was it you? Who's next? Or who, who am I? Who am I missing? Okay. Go ahead. I was just going to say. Um, to the prior conversation, yeah, um, I'm part of an organization, um, an interfaith environmental organization, um, Arizona Interfaith Power and Light, which is part of a national organization. And one of the things that we find all the time, there's lots of climate activists running around doing climate work, but the spiritual component of working to save the earth is a very different way to do that work than doing it just out of facts and knowledge. And it motivates and allows people to deal with the despair and the feelings and the um, and to be in a community doing the work together and it really brings the love and the intangibles into work that is um, that can be very kind of soul numbing um, yeah. advocacy work is really hard to maintain right but when you build community doing the work it's a really different experience and I think that's what you're yeah. describing um, yeah. And so many young people don't belong to any spiritual community at this point. It's not very common that you find young people engaged mm -hmm. in a spiritual community. And so they almost come sometimes to do this work as a point of um, making a spiritual community with the people doing the work because they don't have another place to identify Beautiful. spiritually. Yeah. But um, it, yeah. I think this is really, really powerful. What, so what I'm, you're talking I'm really about. saying bring the people from that community mm -hmm. together with all the other people doing and have a shared discourse, yeah. a shared thing that everybody who's not on the left can say, oh, they're about love, kindness, generosity, environmental sensitivity, awe and wonder right. at the universe. Right. That's what they're about. They keep on saying that, and that's something that makes sense to me. Right. Did you, were you, um, then, uh, yeah, go ahead. One is, you keep saying we, and I don't know who we is. I have, and then I have one other, one other thing. The, the guy who translated Arusha's The Garden of Amuna spoke at the JCC a couple of years ago. And he said he wished the, the leader of Hamas got leprosy and wound up in, dead in the Mediterranean or something like that. And I went up to him afterwards and said, why did he wish that he'd become a lover of Israel rather than rather than, you know, getting this horrible ailment, and then everybody will hate us more for that, having become a lover of Israel. If mm -hmm. it's magical thinking, you might as well think positive. <laughs> exactly. So who, when you say who the we is, the we is the group of people who um, have been around Tikkun, who have read, been reading Tikkun for the past 34 years now. Um, and... Um, and they are people who have joined the network of spiritual progressives, which is the forerunner of this uh, of this enterprise. Uh, um, we thought we've come to think that calling ourselves spiritual progressives still limits lots of people from joining because they, before hearing anything else, they hear the spiritual and say, "I'm not spiritual," I'm, you know. But so we're saying, okay, um, our formulation now is for a love and justice movement. Love, um, and we put love first. Um, but so this is a new movement. And like every new movement, it's uh, few people and few, few financial support and very little um, 
It's an idea that we're putting, putting out and saying, um, if you think it's unrealistic and so forth, and you have a better way, go your better way. But in, I promise you, if you read this book, in 10 years from now, if people haven't gone this way, you will look up this book again and say, boy, I wish they had listened. I wish we had listened to this, because this is a strategy. It's an actual strategy. The, liberal, the Democratic Party has no strategy. The liberal and progressive forces have no unified strategy. They have individual strategies. They have no unified strategy. This is a strategy for how to change the, the discourse in America. And it could work. Um, but not if everybody is, wants to say, well, everybody is bad on the left or whatever. But, but. Could I make an announcement? Because it continues what you just said. Yes. We're uh, in the process of organizing a local chapter of the uh, network of spiritual progressives, which is a way of creating this core group that can uh, push forward the agenda in this book, Revolutionary uh, Love. And I'm uh, Robert Coates, and I'm the uh, organizer for the new uh, spiritual progressive network called the Greater Phoenix Network. So I want to pass out a leaflet that has my uh, email address on it. And we're planning to have groups that study this book located in different uh, synagogues and also uh, <coughs> temples and, and uh, places like uh, the Arizona Jews for Justice. If you can uh, take one of these to pass them out, I appreciate Thank it. you very much. Thank you, Rabbi Lerner. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix...